0: Hello and welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and this is the podcast where we talk about things or times where the scriptures became real to us because we believe there's great power in the scriptures and we draw on that power even better when the scriptures are more real and apply to us in a more easy way. I'm so excited to have with me uh, my guest. This is Stephen Smoot, uh, who I've known for years now, I'm not even sure how many years now, but a number of years now, um, a PhD student at uh, Catholic University. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Thank you, Kerry. Thanks for having me on the show. Glad to be here.
0: I'm excited to have you here. Uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm currently uh, a PhD student at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. I'm getting my PhD in Semitic and Egyptian languages and literature. Uh, So I have one foot in biblical studies, uh, specializing in the Hebrew Old Testament, and I have another foot in Egyptology. Those are kind of my two uh, areas of study uh, that I've turned into sort of a a hybrid Frankenstein's monster of a PhD program and emphasis, and that's what I'm uh, pursuing now. Uh, Before I was at Catholic University, uh, I was at the University of Toronto where I did my master's degree in Egyptology, and before that I was at BYU where I did my uh, undergrad studies in uh, Hebrew Bible, uh, in Old Testament studies. So This has been a trajectory long in the making to end up where I am now, academically speaking, Uh, but uh, it seems to be working out uh, just fine for me. So uh, hopefully that goes well. Um, Other than that, uh, I I currently am a research associate with the BH Roberts Foundation, which is a a new uh, nonprofit uh, research organization that recently launched launched a website called Mormoner.org. So that's Mormon than an R. So Mormoner.org. Uh, where you can check out uh, different uh, research resources. Um, and uh, before, uh, before my PhD work and my work at the BH Roberts Foundation, uh, I was uh, a longtime associate at Book of Mormon Central, uh, which, uh, which maybe uh, some of your listeners have heard about or encountered before. But Book of Mormon Central uh, has, uh, uh, well, originally it was all Book of Mormon resources, but recently has branched out into uh, Old Testament resources, Doctrine and Covenants resources, and Pearl of Great Price uh, resources, which, Carrie, I know you've uh, been involved with and have had some uh, interest in. So uh, I can yeah. give a shameless plug for uh, Book of Mormon Central and Pearl of Great Price Central, where you'll find none other than our esteemed host, Carrie Muelstein, and some of his uh, content that he's done with them. So that gives uh, hopefully a little bit of a background about myself. Uh, yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. And so uh, org is where people can go for that. Uh, and you'll find a lot of those essays, uh, on the book of Abraham. Uh, while there was a collaboration, uh, Stephen was really the lead guy on those, but, uh, there's a collaboration of a number of Egyptologists there. Uh, I, I mean, your, uh, studies sound exactly like wh- what I did with, uh, focusing on both Hebrew Bible and Egyptology, I can tell you there's a lot of good fun to be had there. So let's have some Absolutely. of it today.
1: Absolutely. And what a what yeah. a perfect subject to, to bring Egyptology and the Hebrew Bible together than with the Joseph
0: story, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right, which I guess you're uh, working on in a graduate seminar right now. So
1: the yeah, timing good, is, good is timing right. There. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So that's what we're going to talk about today is the the Joseph story. Of course, if you if come follow me, that spreads over two different weeks. Uh, and we aren't probably going to confine ourselves to just one week or the other, because the story is a story as a whole, but uh, we, we love the whole story, but I don't know. We'll just see. We don't even know yet what we're going to focus on. So we'll find out as we go along. So uh, tell me, Stephen, what are some of the elements of this story that really speak to you?
1: Right. So uh, the Joseph story um, is a little self-contained unit in the Hebrew Bible. It's often called the Joseph novella because it has a nice little opening, uh, uh, a narrative opening, a middle, a climax, and then a closing, right? Like a nice little uh, self-contained unit or story. It comprises uh, Genesis chapter 37 through 50. And so it's the last major story uh, in the book of Genesis, right? And it's, you it's have... a
0: pretty long story for uh, Genesis or really anywhere in the, the scriptures. That's That's a lot of chapters for one story.
1: Absolutely. It's a lot of chapters and it also ties in a lot of the narrative elements you got in the previous stories involving uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Right. So you have these successive generations of this family and it all kind of culminates with this Joseph story, Joseph and his brothers. Right. Um, Right. It's also great because it sets the scene for the story of the Exodus. Uh, so it's a nice little narrative bridge that way. It explains how, you know, we we're going to close the book of Genesis, the sort of the founding fathers of the, you know, the nation of Israel. And then we'll open up with the Exodus story and the Joseph story acts as sort of the, the go between sort of the, it, it narratively shifts the scene from the family to the nation. Right. right. And so it also works that way as well.
0: And, and it's um, a, the geographic bridge as well. It's why they end up where they end up. So And and just to remind some of our listening audience or those who maybe uh, didn't listen to the first couple of podcasts, we've talked a couple of times about how um, the first, like, 11 chapters of Genesis are really kind of a prologue to the story of this family. It's the great big sweeping story of mankind to get you into this family. But then really the rest of Genesis is the prologue to the rest of the Bible. Where we get the 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 sweeping story of the founding family of Israel, and uh, it's in many ways an origin story. This is the origin story of how Israel came to be, who they were in Egypt when they were in Egypt, and then really as we get to Exodus, that's the birth story of the nation. So we're, we're dealing with the birth story of the family. And then we're about to hit the birth story of the nation. And as you say, Joseph is the bridge between the two that gets us from, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are individuals. But now we're talking about a, a huge family with 12 sons that become a nation. So it's, uh, there's a lot of great literary uh, episodes in here that uh, we've touched on a number of times. And here we're tying them together.
1: Absolutely. And I like, Carrie, that you honed in on this uh, literary aspect of these stories. Uh, readers of the Bible, when they just sort of pick up you know, this text, they might miss the very deliberate, deliberate narrative and literary craft that has gone into how these stories are being presented. Yeah. Uh, and so you need to read them with sort of a fine eye for, for narrative and literary details, um, just one offhand example, which we don't need to get too much into, but in the Joseph story, um, there is a heavy emphasis on clothing yeah. and not just clothing. Like obviously Joseph has his, you know, his, uh, his coat, his fine technicolor dream coat, right? That Everybody that's knows right. about from yeah. the yeah. Angeloid Weber. I thought Osmond
0: ended up with that. I can't remember. Exactly. Yeah, 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 that's
1: right. Everyone knows, you know, Joseph's amazing coat, right? But that's not the only time that clothing comes with the story. There's at least, I think five times when Joseph somehow either changes his clothing or five little episodes that involve clothing. Um, And each time it signals kind of a narrative progression because Joseph's status changes every time clothing comes in, right? So he starts off by getting this wonderful coat that his dad gives him because he's the favorite kid. And then the coat is taken away and he's stripped and becomes a slave. And then he goes into Potiphar's house and he's given a change of clothes there and then uh, he's going to change of clothes when he meets Pharaoh, and well, then he's he, him... he
0: leaves his change of clothes in that, right. house. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. Then... That's right.
1: Yeah, he leaves yeah. the clothes, and then he gets another change of clothes when he goes to meet Pharaoh, and then another change of clothes when he becomes the vizier over Egypt. Right. So, yeah. uh, so again, just an example of sort of pay attention to the the really wonderful craft that has gone into how these stories have been told. So they can be appreciated for both their important uh, doctrinal teachings. Um, and, the, and the moral message and the theological message, but also just as fantastic literature and oh. sort of the the craft that has gone into it in that way.
0: And, and it's worth noting that biblical writers were no slouches, right? What Probably, I mean, you don't want to have favorite uh, apostles or prophets or anything, but if I'm going to say my favorite literary apostle in recent years is Elder Maxwell, who was a literary genius. I mean, he, he really... He is, uh, all of the messages we get in conference are powerful, but I really appreciated his uh, literary, I guess, flair as he delivered those messages. And I think we find that in the Bible as well. And, and so uh, I, I like how you said it, the doctrine is there, but we can also appreciate the the literary ability of these. Uh, I mean, when we get to Isaiah, we'll go, whoa, but uh, but it's he's not the only one that has literary abilities in uh, among the biblical writers. And, and maybe I'll right. just point out, um, there's a, a, a book that's somewhat recent um, called From Creation to Sinai, uh, the Old Testament through Lens of Restoration. We've uh, got, got our it. copies here. Uh, yep. uh, Dan Belknap uh, and Aaron Shade, uh, two of our friends, are the editors uh, of this book. And in there, there's a chapter on the Joseph story by uh, John Gee, who's another friend of ours, worked with us on uh, Pearl of Great Price Central. And uh, he, he mentions the clothing uh, element that you just uh, talked about. So this is a great little resource for you. Um, you may want to skip the two chapters by me, but uh, <laughs> but the other chapters uh, have some really uh, interesting stuff in them. So and uh, including the one you were just mentioning.
1: Yeah, yeah. If I could just piggyback off that uh, plug there for this book and this article by John Gee. You know, Carrie, you mentioned how the whole point of this podcast, and I think it's really important, is to understand that the scriptures are real that uh, these accounts, these stories happened to, to real people in a real time and place. Yeah. Um, and John Gee, the, the, the big thrust of his article is to look at the material culture of the Joseph story. And what he means by that is, um, you know, if these were real people, then they were, had tangible bodies in space and time and they were interacting with real objects. So things like clothes or cups, right? Uh, Joseph's uh, cup is obviously going to be a big element in the story later. And so uh, his article looks at uh, sort of tries to ground the sort of spatial or historical reality of the material culture depicted in the Joseph story, comparing it with what we know uh, from uh, non-biblical or extra biblical sources through archaeology, through epigraphy, through these different uh, avenues uh, to try to create the real world setting of what the Joseph story, uh, how it would have unfolded and what it sort of would have looked like or the best we can kind of reconstruct. Uh, is sort of real world flavor to it, if you will. So um, yeah, I, I absolutely second uh, and recommend John Gee's uh, article there uh, as, a, as a pretty good way to sort of ground yourself in the story if you want to uh, try to imagine as best we can. We can't do it perfectly, obviously, but we can, uh, in some respects, do a pretty good job of sort of grounding the Joseph story uh, in, the, uh, in the real world context that it was uh, situated in.
0: Yeah, which uh, again is I, so much fun for me, at least, because it does help it become more real. And there's so many touchstones, so many things where you're like, "Oh, yeah, that's that's exactly what they're talking about in the Bible," and you can see that the biblical authors uh, were representing their time accurately. So, yeah, I right, agree. Yeah,
1: yeah. The uh, maybe one example that we could uh, throw out, since uh, we want to, we both have an interest in the Egyptological side of things here. Uh, is looking at the different names and titles and ranks that Joseph is given Mm. uh, within the story. And this is something that John Gee has touched on in his article. Uh, He's not the only one. Obviously there are a number of uh, biblical scholars who have who have background in Egyptology that have also uh, looked at this. Uh, But Joseph in the story is given specific titles or ranks, right? So at one point he's uh, like uh, he's put over all of the house of Pharaoh, right? And, uh, that's almost directly uh, correlates with a known Egyptian title the emiro pair, right? The overseer Mm -hmm. of the house. Like this is an attested thing uh, that we know uh, ancient Egyptians had this title, this, this, this function, this office. Uh, It's something that, that we can point to and say this is sort of a, a, a realism or a real element in the story that helps us appreciate sort of maybe make sense of what's happening in the story.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well said.
1: The other, my other example, I was just thinking about um, that I really like to be sometimes miss. So uh, later in the story, I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but you know, since we're on the subject here, I hope it's okay. Uh, if you go to the end of the story, uh, around uh, chapter, uh, I think it's about forty-seven or so. I can double check, but it's when the brothers finally are revealed. I think it's forty-five. Here, let me let me see if I can pull it up here. Okay. Um, yeah. So so starting in uh, chapter sort of 43, 44 and 45, this is when Joseph's brothers actually come down into Egypt and uh, they, they go to Joseph as the vizier, the guy who's now in charge of distributing food during this famine. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as the as the administrator who's in charge of this, they have to convince Joseph to let them take some of their food back to Canaan. And we all know the story. Right. Joseph. He recognizes brothers, but the brothers don't recognize Joseph. So as far as the brothers know, Joseph, their brother is either dead or gone, and they're standing before this powerful Egyptian administrator, right? So the question becomes, if you're some shepherd from the sticks of Canaan, right, and you're coming into Egypt and you basically are begging for food, how do you talk to an Egyptian administrator, do we have a, do we have any indication how do in sort of these diplomatic contexts right, right. and as a matter of fact we do have some sense because um, a few centuries after the probable life uh, probable time of the Joseph story uh, we have these diplomatic correspondences called the Amarna letters which are uh, these series of uh, letters sent from the sort of Canaanite chieftains or kings to the king of Egypt. Uh, the capital then was located in Amarna, uh, this ancient city in Egypt. And so they're called the Amarna letters and it's these uh, and these are vassals to the Egyptian King. So these Canaanite Kings are uh, subservient to, and have shown sort of like uh, political loyalty uh, and subservience to the Egyptian King. Right. And so we know how people talk when they talk to high Egyptian officials and it is so obsequious and so groveling, and every letter is filled with, you know, these long uh, sort of outlandish, over-the-top uh, sort of adulations that are given to the king. So things like, to, to the king, my lord, my son, to whom I bow seven times every day, may he live forever and ever, right? And they just go on and on and on. And I know, Carrie, you, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. You, you've oh, yeah. read some of these correspondences yeah. So And and then they they
0: describe themselves in a similar manner, like your your servant who is groveling and whatever else, right? They they, they make sure that they highlight both his greatness and their subservience.
1: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Now, compare that with how the brothers speak to Joseph when they're in front of him. And uh, you'll see every single time it's always, well, first of all, they're always in the sort of deferential mode. They're always calling themselves your servants. Oh, your servants are here to beg of you this or that, right? Um, it's not as over the top as in these diplomatic correspondences, but you do get the flavor for that, right? right, uh, right. You do well, and get they're not stuff.
0: addressing the king, so it should be just a little bit less over the top anyway. But, tone, yeah. tone
1: it down a little bit, right. But yeah. still, you want to really get across. So there's another example, I think, of where um, sort of the, the language and the depiction uh, and the elements of the story um, both have a literary quality to them right? It's ironic here because the brothers who tried to kill Joseph are now basically groveling at Joseph's feet, right? So there's sort of this ironic literary element, but it's also a grounded real element in what we know about the ancient world roughly around the time. This is how you talk to high Egyptian nobles, uh, and the story sort of captures that effectively. So, so just another example, there's many others we could talk about. Uh, I'm sure we don't want to do it the whole time, but just another example um, where uh, it, it, you, sh- you see the realism coming out of the story,
0: yeah, uh, maybe I'll just use one example um, that you see them continually refer to themselves as your servant, right? That's how when they speak to Joseph. Uh, so we're, I'm just looking at chapter 42, verse 11, when they are first talking with Joseph and they say, We are all one man's son. We, son, we are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies, right? They continually refer refer to themselves as thy servants or thy servant, which is exactly what we find happens both in the Amarna letters, but in other settings, when you're talking to someone who is your superior, you refer to yourself as their servant, whether you're their servant or not, that's how you refer to yourself. And so it it, it fits in perfectly with the ancient world. It's just kind of fun to see it happen.
1: Yep, exactly. So, So little elements like that. Uh, help me appreciate sort of bringing my academic background into the story and he- sort of heightening my appreciation for it. Um, yeah. And you know, how real it is. And how real it is, right. Uh, not to necessarily try to prove this is true in some sense, but it, it, it does help us nevertheless appreciate uh, just, yeah, how real it is and how remarkable um, and how well we can connect with it by understanding it that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And as I say so many times, when, when these people are real, since we're real, uh, it just is, allows us to apply their their situations to ours better. Well, wonderful. Uh, what else would you like to talk about with the Joseph story?
1: Maybe we could talk a little bit about um, Joseph's personality in the story. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I think we have a tendency uh, as Latter-day Saints today, when we read the scriptures, uh, ever since we're little kids in primary, uh, we have a tendency uh, to read them as sort of like, oh, these are always the good guys, and they're always just these sort of sort of uh, sort of stock characters, right? Sort right. of we we kind of caricature them as, oh, Joseph. Well, Joseph's a prophet, so he's a good guy, and he's and we don't appreciate sort of the the complexity of these personalities of of these characters, right? And plus, uh,
0: with these stories, we get the stories of them growing into becoming prophets, right? Uh, which I think right. sometimes we forget. Uh, and, right. and even with uh, Judah, I think we, uh, we sometimes forget uh, his opportunity for growth uh, and so on. And we give them all these monochromatic things. So.
1: Monochromatic, that, that's the, a good word to describe it. So, so in, uh, or, or rather a good way to describe how we often approach these characters, whereas they're much more complex than that. So, so let's start up maybe in Genesis 37. Okay. Uh, so this is, this is the opening chapter of the Joseph story. Uh, and we start out, uh, with Jacob, uh, dwelling in the land of Canaan. He's with his family, uh, at this point, uh, all the sons have been born. So we've got all, you know, 12 of the sons, uh, hanging around,
0: um, and, and pretty young, but yeah,
1: pretty young. Yeah. So Joseph, uh, is, uh, I think it says he's 17 years old at the time, um, or, or somewhere around there. So, so he's uh, yeah, he's a young man. Um, and, and starting, uh, in verse four, we have, uh, so, well, we should, we should, uh, point out that, uh, so Joseph and Benjamin are, are actual blood brothers, right? Uh, not full all of brothers. the, they're full brothers, right? Yeah. All, all of the, uh, uh not all of the brothers are necessarily full brothers. Uh, some are uh, like, we say half brothers, right. Uh, yeah. from same father, but different mothers. Right. But mm-hmm. Joseph and Benjamin are full brothers. Um, and it says, uh, in verse three, when you have a lot of, uh, sons, you have a lot of kids uh, in these sorts of families, this is probably bound to happen. Verse three. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his other children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. There's that famous phrase, right? Uh, So already dad has a favorite kid, right? So right off the bat, you have this dynamic here with these characters. Um,
0: Yeah. And maybe we can just interject and tie it together with some things we've talked about in the past with the the patriarchal narratives presenting these difficult and messy family situations. Um, and, And let's remember the difficulty that really all of Jacob's family has gone through, where Jacob is tricked into marrying someone that's not the person he fell madly and passionately in love with, right? And I don't think we, uh, uh, well, we haven't uh, anyway. But this, just how in love he is with Rachel, and then to find out he was tricked into marrying someone else, and how difficult that must be for Leah, how difficult that is for Jacob, how difficult it is for Rachel, who sees her sister Mary, the the, the man who loves her, and and so on, and so. Uh, And then the whole uh, thing between, well, I'm able to have children and and I'm not able to have children and how difficult that must be for Jacob to negotiate that. Um, And then finally, like Abraham, who waited for so long for Sarah to have children, um, Jacob has waited for so long for Rachel to have children. And she finally has, she's had Joseph and then she has Benjamin and then the crushing blow absolutely crushing blow that Rachel dies in giving birth to Benjamin. And so Jacob now knows not only uh, did he wait so long for these two boys, but Rachel's not ever giving him any more children. Uh, these are his only kind of tangible memories of Rachel are Joseph and uh, Benjamin. And so well, maybe, maybe uh, I don't know. I'm not here to fault Jacob or not, but uh, this whole thing about um, that he loves Joseph more—it's easy for us to say, "Oh, that's just silly." Uh, you know, why why it, it shouldn't be so partial or whatever else. And who knows how partial it really is? My kids say, "Oh, you're the favorite." No, you're, and I'm—they're saying, "What are you guys talking about?" And it's not true at all. So maybe there's, maybe it's not as true as what is written in here, but there's something to it. Um, and I think, I mean, I kind of have to feel for, uh, Jacob and the, the fact that he's lost Rachel and Joseph and Benjamin are all that he has left of that. That's, that's really a, a touching and endearing element of the story, even though it also has with it a difficult edge of the story, which right. is how things usually go in life, that some of the most touching and endearing things also have really difficult elements to them.
1: Exactly. Uh, well said the, uh, the, the dysfunctionality, if you want to call it that, of the family that we see here—not just with Jacob's family, but even
0: before—right,
1: yeah. uh, uh, Abraham has problems with uh, Sarah and Hagar. It goes on and on. Um, That—that's something that real families encounter, right? Yeah. Uh, Are—it's uh, a sad fact that you know family life isn't always perfect, and families for time immemorial have had these sorts of problems. Uh, and yeah. so, th- th- I think it's designed way. for
0: it to not be perfect because families are the testing ground. This is where we learn to have patience, we learn to have love, we learn to forgive, we learn to overcome. That we wouldn't learn that very well if families were perfect. They're supposed to be right. somewhat difficult, and that's how we become better people, and thus we become better families, which is what we're talking about. These are people who are becoming. So, anyway, right. sorry, keep going.
1: No, that's great. Yeah, uh, these these are families in the process of becoming better, becoming perfected together. Um, I also think it is uh, going back to the literary or narrative quality. It gives drama to the story, yeah. right? Uh, these, these aren't boring characters. These are characters <laughs> with very clear motivations and character and development and even character arcs, right? Uh, and we're going to see this, especially like with Judah, right? Judah is going to be prominent in this story for his nice little character arc from the beginning to the end of the story. Um, but we have at the outset of the story here this family drama that's going to be the impetus for the main drama, right? And so it's going to say that, uh, well, let, 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 let's for a second here put ourselves in the shoes of the brothers, right? Uh, it, it sometimes is hard for us to do this because they're the quote-unquote bad guys of the story, uh, and it sometimes is hard for us to sort of sympathize with them. Why on earth would they want to, you know, kill their brother or sell them into slavery? What horrible people, Right. Uh, but, but let's just take a second here to sort of show how the story is trying to set up the motivation of these characters uh, in the form of the brothers. So we have in chapter 37, verses three and four, uh, Joseph is Israel's or Jacob's favorite kid. In uh, verse four, when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and they could not speak peaceably unto him, right? Right. Uh,
0: and the, I've uh, seen that happen among uh, lots of different families where when someone gets under someone else's uh, blanket, right, they, they get they get a burr under their blanket, you, they cannot let it go. They just mm-hmm. keep goading each other.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, you know, when, when we read it in translation, you know, they hated him. They couldn't speak peaceably. We think that maybe means, oh, well, you know, they had an awkward time at the dinner conversation. What or you know they had awkward time at dinner, right? No, what the Hebrew text is literally they could not speak to him shalom goodness. They had nothing good, nothing well to say about this guy, right? Like, yeah. uh, and the Hebrew is very is very emphatic about that in the way that it uh, communicates that. So uh, we're supposed to be queued up. Okay, there's problem in the fam in the drama or there's drama or problem in the family. So going on then um, between verses about five and and 11 is when you have Joseph coming around and he starts telling them about all his dreams. So Joseph says, Hey, look, and again, here's the King James. Um, and Joseph dreamed a dream and he told to his brethren and they hated him all the more, right? Well, what's interesting. So, so remember Joseph's a teenager, right? He's 17 years old. He's having these dreams. And what's really great is in the Hebrew when Joseph is talking to his, when he's telling the dream to his brothers and later to his dad, the, the key freezes vahine. He keeps saying this, vahine, I saw this, which basically means, and look, I saw this. And it, keep, it keeps peppering it through the text. So basically what I like to imagine is, imagine an annoying teenager who can't stop talking, who's just plowdering on, and look, 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 I saw this, and look, 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 I saw that, right? Like he's really getting on their nerves here and it's really driving home that Joseph just can't kind of keep it to himself. He has to keep going around, he's kind of a try-hard in that sense, right? Like he he has to go around like teenagers do and try to impress everybody with all these crazy dreams he's having. And he just can't, it's always vahine, vahine, look, 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 uh, look what I'm seeing here. So the way that the language kind of works, Joseph's character is like this sort of pestering, annoying teenager going around, tugging at dad's you know clothes. Look dad, look what I found, look what I heard, look what I saw, right? And it, it's ratcheting up the uh, the, the tension here because obviously the we're going to know what happens but you know if you're listening to the story for the first time or hearing it read to you as it would have been anciently if you're the ancient israelite hearing the story read to you you know you're you're going to get oh boy yeah this joseph kid is going around and pestering his family well you know let's see how that turns out for him right so yeah. so again both both the real world dimension this is a family that not everything's great in the family and the the sort of literary narrative art and craft going on here just makes it wonderful i think
0: yeah agreed and uh, uh, you have to admit this is not the most diplomatic thing Joseph could have done, given the situation he's already in. This is awfully undiplomatic. And uh, you know, I, I often say, well, if I want to try and be charitable to Joseph, then I'm going to assume he is inspired in in needing to tell him because he'd sure be smarter if he just shut up, but and, and didn't share this. Uh, even his father is a little bit like, well, are you really saying that about me? And I kind of have to assume. Jacob was supposed to know that, and these brothers were supposed to know that because it's a prophecy that ends up being fulfilled. But literally, even if he's inspired, they paint it as him being a bothersome inspired person, right? right? Uh, right. That, okay, maybe he was supposed to tell them, maybe he needed to tell them, but wow, can you just give it a rest for a second kind of a thing? Exactly, right? Yeah. exactly
1: right. And later in verse 19, this is uh, another instance where um, the, the King James Version probably doesn't quite do justice to uh the Hebrew, the literary art of the Hebrew. So later in verse 19, when the brothers see Joseph coming from afar, he's approaching them, right? He's he, they're they're now off in Shechem, or sorry, rather, this place Dotan. They've left and they're in this place called Dotan, where they're uh, uh watching the sheep. And Joseph is coming looking for the brothers, and they see him from far off. And in the King James version of verse 19 of Genesis 37, it says, and they said one to another, behold, this dreamer cometh. And you think like, well, okay, that's, that's great. So what's so great about that? Um, the Hebrew text literally has them say, and behold, the ba'al ha Holomot. So like the, the Lord of dreams and it's uh, ha-holot haleza. So like, oh, look, you know, Mr. Dreamer over here, right? Like it's very sarcastic, right? Yeah. The, the, this. It, he, Joseph's a Baal, a, a Lord or a Master, but he's, oh, he's the Lord of the Dreams, right? So yeah. y- you get like the dripping disdain that the brothers have for him, right? With yeah. the language. They're using this uh, very sort of uh, faux respectability language, right? The Lord of Dreams. What's hilarious about this, though, and again, here's the irony is Joseph later is going to be the Baal of his brothers, right? Like, right. And they're going to address him as Adonai, my lord, when they're, as we said, right? When, when he's the vizier and the brothers have to come groveling to him, he really is the Baal HaHalot, right? The, the, yep. the lord of dreams. Uh, they don't realize it yet. So, again, there's irony ba- you know, built in here. There's sort of this dripping disdain uh, that, that you, sort of, you can kind of see their characters coming out here. And it's going to come back and it's going to bite them because later they're going to have to come to this lord of dreams, uh, you know, asking for his
0: help. And, um, so, and fulfill his dreams, actually. <laughs>
1: that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, I've um, often so-
0: thought that the, the, the DreamWorks v- version of this, right? They did Prince of Egypt, but then the next thing they did was the prequel, which was uh, Joseph, King of Dreams. And, and I've often, I mean, I know there were a number of Jewish people involved in that a, a movie that, that spoke Hebrew. I think they probably were familiar with this phrase and had that in mind. I mean, they changed it to King of Dreams because that, that works better than Baal uh, it, but, uh, for English speakers, but I think that's exactly Mm -hmm. this irony we're talking about of them making fun of them. And then it actually ending up being true is part of what they had in mind when they titled the movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, so just, uh, another good example there, I think that helps me bring the story, bring it to life, help me appreciate it more. Uh, I can see that these are sort of distinct characters here with different motivations uh, with different sort of character, uh, well, characteristics to their character, right? Um, and and we're going to see uh, we're going to see um, their character arcs later on. Um, another example here. So uh, just to sort of wrap up in chapter uh, thirty-seven. So uh, you know we we have the issue. So Joseph finally comes, and the brothers uh, there's, there's the brothers decide, you know, what are we going to do with this guy? we got to get rid of him. And so, uh, the first sort of question they're thinking about is, is they're going to say, we're going to throw him in a pit and we're going to say some evil, you know, well, an evil animal, a wild animal, uh, uh it ha- has devoured him. And then we'll see what happens to it. Right. And the first thing we're going to get is Reuben is going to say, well, I don't know if we should, you know, we should kill him. Uh, rather, uh, let's not shed blood against him, but let's try to get rid of him some other way. Uh, this is where we're going to have the, uh, the incident with the Ishmaelites coming and selling him. but later in verse 26. So here's an example of sort of the character arc coming verse 26. We're going to have Judah. So first Reuben steps in and says, uh, do we really have to kill the kid? Right. We can do something else. And then Judah is going to step in in verse 26. And he's going to say, what profit is it? If we slay our brother and conceal his blood come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh and his brethren were content. So so Judah is gonna be the one that puts the idea in their head as they're deliberating what to do with it to sell him off to these Ishmaelites, okay? Uh, Now, why is that significant? Well, I think it's significant because several chapters later, it's going to be Judah who is going to tell Jacob, uh, look, okay, so so fast forward, the brothers want to get food, Joseph uh, to sort of test them, right? He accused them of being spies. And they say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're brothers. Our dad is back in Canaan. He sent us to come get food. And, and we, have a, we even have another brother back in Canaan, right? Uh, and Joseph is going to say, OK, prove it. So they have to go back to Canaan and they have to convince Jacob to let them take Benjamin to come back in order to rescue. I think it's Simeon that, 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 yeah. that uh, Joseph keeps as sort of a hostage, right? So yeah. uh, to prove we'll, that we'll you're collateral. Collateral. There you go. Oh, yeah. I keeps him as collateral. And he says, in order to prove you're real, Simeon's going to stay here. You bring back the other brother to prove he's, he's real. Okay. Uh, again, it's kind of sly because, you know, yeah. Joseph probably wants to see, oh, is Benjamin really alive? Right. Again, right. Joseph knows who these guys are. They don't know who Joseph is. Right.
0: And, I, yeah, and you get the sense that Joseph would really love to see his full brother again.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so what's going to happen is uh, Judah is going to be the one to tell Jacob, look, dad, Simeon's in trouble. We have to bring Benjamin to show it to this guy to get Simeon back. Jacob is understandably very reluctant to have this happen because he's the only last surviving kid, as far as he knows, the last surviving kid of Rachel, right? Yeah. Judah yeah. is going to say, he'll be under my protection. I'll watch out for him and I'll make sure he comes back. So when, so when we have the big plot twist where you know, Joseph puts his cup in Benjamin's sack, what is Judah going to do? Judah is going to step in and he's going to say, let me be your slave and not Benjamin. Take me, not the other one. This is an exact diametrical opposition to what he did with Joseph here in chapter 37. The tables are turned and Judah has had a major character arc. And this is when we get the big reveal, right, uh, of Joseph. There's at least one or two, I think, instances where Joseph, when he first meets his brothers, has to kind of step aside and let his emotions out because he's so overwhelmed. And he composes himself and steps back. But it's it's after this final point. Judah has had his arc. He's gone from uh, being the one to sell Joseph into slavery to, to sell himself into slavery to say, Benjamin. That's when Joseph is going to step in and finally make the big reveal. I am Joseph. Ani Yosef. Right. Uh, right. Th- this big dramatic declaration. So uh, you you can see the 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 long narrative trajectory of this character of Judah. Uh, to say nothing of what happens in Genesis 38 with Tamar, that's a whole other yeah. discussion, right? But yeah. there's more going on there. It's just fantastic how this story has been set up uh, and how, uh, how it's narrated for us to help us really appreciate its, its ultimate message.
0: Uh, I agree. And there, there are a couple little uh, uh, subplots in what you're talking about as well. Uh, and again, I, I can't emphasize enough, the, the change in Judah and the Judah arc, I think is a really important element of this story, but But there's also a a Judah and Benjamin. uh, I mean, Judah and Reuben, kind of um, tension as well. And and it ends up being the same tension. So uh, Reuben is the oldest, uh, but it seems like leadership in many ways is starting to default to Judah, uh, partially because Reuben has uh, committed some sins against his father. Um, But it's starting to to default to Judah, and yet it's. Jacob is pushing it to Joseph, so you have these three men who they're uh, you know brothers through uh, their tension as to who's going to be the leader, but they're also three, and often we make Judah fully and completely the bad guy, but let's think about this. The idea is, and it doesn't say who comes up with the idea of of uh, casting him in the pit, um, and and basically they want him to die there, right? Um, but you do get the idea that Reuben. Reuben wants to save Joseph and his plan seems to be okay. If we can get him to cast him into the pit, I'm going to come back and rescue him later. All right. So Reuben who has as much cause as anyone to have problems with Joseph, because leadership seems to be passing from the oldest child to Joseph. Reuben's going to be the one that will try and save him, but he's actually, he's powerless, right? Yeah, uh, capable, it, yeah. incapable of doing it. Um, whereas Judah steps in, and it's easy to make Judah fully the bad guy for selling them. But the alternative was they were going to kill him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he does say, hey, let's sell him because he's our brother. I don't feel good about killing our brother. So selling him into slavery is not ideal, but it is, in fact, better than killing him. So, yeah, right. so you have to give Judah some credit there for the idea of, of preserving his life. And Judah is the one who prevails. So he's the one that really ends up with some power uh, in this situation. And then when it's time to go back to Egypt and bring Benjamin, Reuben's the first one that goes to Jacob and says, let's, we need to go back. Let's take Jacob. I'll stand as surety for, for, I mean, let's take Benjamin. I'll stand as surety for Benjamin. And Jacob says, no, no way. And it's when Judah says, let's go back. I'll stand as surety for Benjamin. Now, some time's gone by and they're about to starve to death at this point, but still the way the story is set up, um, it's Judah who Jacob listens to. And, and uh, is the one who is effective, actually, in a way, in delivering J- Benjamin, even though I don't think Joseph was going to kill Benjamin or enslave him, but, but he's still effective in delivering him. Um, and so in some ways, this story is designed to show why the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Joseph through Manasseh, or Ephraim will be the leadership tribes. Reuben, yeah. though he's the oldest, is ineffectual. That's the word I was trying to think of. Infectual, he's ineffectual. Yeah. ineffectual. Uh, each time he tries to step in and do something good, we're not saying Reuben's a bad guy. He's a good guy in all of those situations, not in the situation where, where he sleeps with his father's wife, but in the others, he's a good guy, but he's ineffectual. And the ones who are effectual are Joseph and Judah. And that tension, if you need to understand this story and the tension that is set up in this story, because it continues through the rest of the Old Testament. right? Um, and, uh, and so that, that's an important element of this story.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's those sort of longer sort of trajectory elements of how the story is going to unfold throughout the course of the rest of the, of the, the history of Israel. Right. Yeah. Um, and 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 uh, there, there have been a number of scholars who, who have talked about the, the story being sort of a, a pro-Judaite propaganda in a sense. Right. Yeah, uh,
0: a little bit. Uh, uh,
1: yeah, a little bit. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's he, also he
0: is... pro-Joseph. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mostly anti reuben in the end, but
1: yeah, 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 that's right. So, so how, how the story perhaps uh, later is being used by later biblical authors or by the Israelites themselves to sort of uh, sort of situate their later political situations. That's an interesting facet of it as well, right? Like uh, it says something about uh, like the reception of the story uh, throughout Israel's ancient history and sort of how it was maybe even sort of crafted in subtle ways uh, and used in that sort of, we could say propagandistic way. Um, again, this is a story that's been around for a long time and it's been used in a variety of ways. And it's interesting to see the reception of it as much as it is you know, the story itself, sort of the yeah. long-term trajectory arc of the story uh, as, as well as the elements within it. So yeah, that, that's another important thing to keep in mind, absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, and, and it's just another expression of how it's an origin story, right? It's yeah. a story that explains how we got to be who we are and where we are
1: absolutely Um, i think though on on the subject of other character arcs if i could if i could uh bring up one more i think it's for to look at sort of joseph yeah please to see to see his sort of where he comes from um so one thing you find out throughout the story uh is and it's especially punctuated uh at the end is that joseph's a pretty emotional guy he's pretty emotionally sensitive right so we saw it earlier with um, him sort of pestering mom and dad and the brothers with his dreams, right? Yeah. And the emotion I associate that was kind of this sort of naive eagerness, right? Like he's a, again kind of a kind of a tryhard, maybe trying to please or, or trying to sort of you know, uh, as teenagers want to do, right? Make himself out to be yeah. something. So you can tell that that Joseph's very sort of sensitive in that sense, right? He. He's not the kind of guy that sort of keeps his feelings to himself, right? Just kind of bottles them up, like you can tell. And, and we're going to see this come out later here. So, um, and, uh, so skipping down to uh, Genesis 45. So again, we've already seen an example. Um, I forget the exact location, but when, when Joseph first sees his brothers, he has an aside where he has to go and let his emotions out because he's overwhelmed with emotion. Yeah. Um so so that's going to happen at least one time while he's still sort of keeping up the ruse, right? While he's still pretending to just to be the vizier. But then in um uh, in Genesis at the end of 44 beginning of Genesis 45, so now we have Judah's big statement right like um uh, it says I pray thee this is chapter 44 verse Thirty-three. I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad, meaning Benjamin, a bondman to my lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I? This is Judah still. For how shall I go up to my father? And the lad be not with me, lest peradventure I see the evil that this uh, that shall come on my father. So now that Judah, the guy that sold Joseph into slavery, now that he is willing to himself be taken into slavery for Benjamin. Right, a total character arc and role reversal. That's when we get uh, in Genesis forty-five, verse one, and then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. Remember, before he excused himself and went and privately turned aside and let his emotions out. Now he can't keep it in anymore, so uh, he, he and he cried. Uh, cause every man to go, and he cried out, "Cause every man to go out for me." So before he had uh, an, an Egyptian interpreter with him in order to keep up the ruse, the story says, right? Uh, it's the classic story where Joseph knows what they're saying, but they don't know that he knows what they're saying, right? right. So like it, it, this sort of subtlety, trickery going on here, right? So he has the interpreter there and other Egyptians in the in the court or whatever. He has them all leave, so now it's just Joseph and the brothers. And uh, here's what, so it says, uh, Continue on in verse one, and there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brethren. Here we go again. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brother, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? Okay. First thing he asks, I'm Joseph, is dad still alive? That's the first Mm -hmm. thing he wants to know. That's an emotional response, right? Of yeah. all the things that Joseph could, you know, wonder about or want to tell them or whatever. The first thing it's it's an emotional, a, a very fraught, a very, you know, perilous sort of question. Is dad still alive? He's weeping, he's crying, he's going. is dad
0: still alive? And 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 maybe I can add to that just yep. a little bit. And I know, I know you're going, sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I think no, we no, can no. add to that. Because in fact, he's already asked that question. His brothers already, just before this, they have told him, Yeah, our father is well. Um but there's something to being able to ask that question as you, right? Yes, I, I think now that he is himself, he wants to ask about their father. And I think it points out what has been the most difficult thing about the separation. He lost his dad in this separation and it's killing him. And n- even though they've already told him about dad, now that he can be Joseph, please tell me about mm-hmm. dad. Exactly.
1: I think before, when he's still in person, it's, do you have a father? How is your father? Yeah. Uh, he has to be careful. Now he can yeah. say, um, uh, he says, uh, is my father still yes. alive? Right. Yeah. And what's, what's really great about this. So again, of all the, so Joseph could have said, I am Joseph, how dare you sell me into slavery? Right. Whatever. Right. He could have right. done, He could have moralized. That's not what he does. It's a very emotional response. Um, but then here's, what's interesting is the reaction of the brothers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, and this is something that we, we often miss, but it says, so I am Joseph doth my father yet live. And his brethren could not answer him for they were troubled at his presence.
0: Yeah. And you would guess they were, <laughs> they're terrified. Like they, yeah. they're, they're speechless.
1: They're stunned. Right. And so he has to say it again, verse four. And Joseph said unto his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. So there, so the, the imagery, if you're, if you're, if you're a director, right? And you're staging the scene for for a movie adaptation. You have Joseph say, I'm Joseph, my father alive. The camera pans over. The brethren are stunned silent. They're not moving. They're in shock. Camera back to Joseph, come near me, Come right? He tells him to come closer. I am Joseph, your brother. Then now he adds, uh, he adds this qualifier. I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye
0: sold into Egypt, which has to scare him just a little bit more.
1: A little, right? You see the tension ratcheting up yeah. here, but also like the catharsis,
0: right? Yeah. Uh, th- yeah. th- that's
1: happening here. That's
0: exactly right. And and I have to, again, this is kind of part of the scriptures being real, but if I put myself in the position of those brothers, there is no more frightening thing I could have heard at that moment than when I'm standing in front of this very, very powerful man, and he says, I'm Joseph. And I, you, you just be like, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. That, that's Ooh, exactly are right. Hitting me, right? It's, I mean, it just has to be their stomach sinking to the bottom of their hearts. Uh, I mean, the, I meant the heart sinking to the bottom of their stomachs, and just this complete feeling of dread. And then you're right; you get it. You get it. It has to hit even a little bit more when he emphasizes whom ye sold into Egypt. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> keep going.
1: No, no, absolutely. So I think, um, and then finally, uh, he resolves verse five. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither. And now here's the moral, here's the punchline for God did send me before you to preserve life. Okay. So we have this. So going back to my idea of this character arc, Joseph went from being an immature teenager who is, you know, plowdering away about his dreams and bugging mom and dad and the brothers with his dreams. And really trying to
0: find who he is and how he fits in, right?
1: Trying to find out who he is. Exactly. That's right. He's trying to discover himself and his identity, and he's annoying the family. And now we fast forward, and the Ark Joseph has matured. He's had these experiences. He, he's still the emotional little boy who's still crying, right? We right. still get this side of his character. But now he uh, is uh, he's the vizier of Egypt, right? The right hand of Pharaoh. Um, and he, can, he has enough emotional maturity now where he can say, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't be mad at yourselves god orchestrated this for a reason right uh, so so you can see little immature teenage joseph grown up now into mature adult joseph and that includes his emotional maturity so it's just a fantastic scene we have catharsis right we have yeah. revelation uh, literally the revelation of, hey, I'm Joseph, I'm still alive, and also the revelation of God did this, right? Like there was, there was a divine plan to all of this. So we have catharsis, we have revelation, we have these nice little, all these little narrative strands have come together involving Judah, involving Reuben, involving Joseph, right? Um, and so we have for this uh, powerful, dramatic um, uh, sort of climax here. But uh, yeah, going back to our theme of the conversation, uh, you know, it, if these are real people and we ground them in a real world, we should allow them to have real human emotions and reactions to these situations, yeah. right? And, and I this, feel like the story does a very good job of capturing that and conveying that. These aren't wooden stock monochromatic characters, as you said, right? They're, they're complex and they're rich. And I think that's because they were real people that read real lives and real people have complicated emotions uh, yeah. about these sorts of things.
0: I agree. And I, I, I agree with you. The, uh, this story, probably more than any other in the Bible, gives you glimpses to the emotions of a very difficult story a story that if you were living through it this would be incredibly difficult everyone's right and it's it's not just joseph who's had a difficult time and if we're going to add to the emotional joseph but also to try and see this the arc of his brothers and where they've come i I love this and let me see if i can find it it's when they uh first meet joseph on the first go round um and they come down and um so i'm trying to um I think it's in chapter 42. Um, Yeah, and it's when he first says to them, okay, you're spies. They say, we're not spies, and then you have to prove it by bringing your youngest brother, and we get verse 42, and this is when they're speaking to each other and they don't know he can understand. And verse 21, and they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, so we're going to stop there. We're going to read the rest because it's important, but let's stop right there. Notice that when something goes wrong, the first thing they say is we're guilty about what we did to Joseph. And it's just this little glimpse that they have felt guilty about this there ever since it is tearing them up. When something goes wrong, you say this is because of what we did. Right. And I kind of get the sense when when I read um uh, Ju- uh judah and he's telling joseph no is to keep me let's let benjamin go home and he says because i i don't want my father to die when benjamin doesn't come home it's just a little hint that it may have been killing them to see what this what their actions did to their father mm-hmm. they underestimated how this would devastate jacob a- a- absolutely devastate him and they feel terrible about it so you see their emotion coming out just a little bit here but let's keep reading We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore, does this distress come upon us? So you've been talking about the, the emotionality of Joseph. There's another one where we just get this little glimpse of the emotions he showed. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have your brother selling you and to be pleading, don't do this to me. Are you kidding me? Don't, please don't do this to me. Um, but we we see his his emotion there, and that his emotion continues to bring about an emotional reaction from his brothers all these years later. Uh, I mean, it's it's a rich, rich story.
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, I'll, I'll just piggyback off that real quick, not to not to beat a dead horse here, but I think it's also worth pointing out uh, this beautiful scene that we have um, in chapter. Uh, yeah, it's back in chapter forty-five. Um, after he's revealed himself to his brethren. Um, so, so after we've had these, the, the tormenting emotions going on here, right. Uh, I think it's, I think it's wonderful how the story ends uh, on a very sympathetic, a uh, positive note. So again, we have, so Joseph is completely within his rights to do whatever he wants with these guys for how terribly they, you know, they treated him. Right. Yeah. And a- not and
0: only within his rights, within his ability,
1: within his ability. That's exactly yeah. right. See, see, you know, the story is set up where sort of morally we're supposed to see that Joseph should be allowed to do whatever he wants with these guys, right? Like he has the moral high ground on the brothers, right? Yeah.
0: And they Um, get their just desserts.
1: Exactly. And they should, right? That's kind of what we would expect for, for this kind of a story, right? Like oh, serves you right brothers. Um, But what's going to happen is so after he he's revealed himself to his brothers in chapter 45 um, uh, in verse 14 uh, and notice who it is specifically And he fell upon his brother, Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Remember what we read in chapter 37, his brothers could not speak a single good word with this kid, right? They could not speak shalom with him. They couldn't say anything good or well with him. Now they're talking. Now they're having this, the finally the family connection is being made here. Uh, So we have a nice sort of tie in there, a little reference to the beginning, another character arc, this time for the whole group of brothers, right? Uh, We've seen individual character growth. And now we've seen as a group, they've now come and they've, and they've reconciled.
0: Yeah. And then to just piggyback uh, because it's the exact same image and it's the, the, so there are several almost like, oh, the story could have ended perfectly there, but there's another element where it could have ended perfectly. Right. So then we get in chapter 46, when uh, Jacob and his entire household has come down and we get in verse 29, and you'll just note how similar this sounds to what happened with, with Benjamin uh, verse 29 and Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck or yeah, yeah fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Right. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine what that reunion must have been like. Um, What an incredible reunion that was for Joseph to finally, first of all, finally be with Benjamin again, and then to finally be with his father again, and for Jacob to be with Joseph again. Uh, What an amazing thing. And, and, you know, there's this uh, great bit of symbolism, this story about Joseph, uh, you know, saving Israel uh, and being reunited with his father. And if we're going to follow that symbolism through, then, then in a way, this is uh, must give us a glimpse of what it must have been like when the Savior who saves Israel finally was reunited with his father. Uh, I mean, just a, a beautiful, beautiful scene. But there's it, another. It, yeah. Oh, sorry. Keep going.
1: No, I, I think that's great. Uh, the imagery of Joseph's reconciliation with his brother and then his father. Uh, I think it's a beautiful way to sort of turn it into a, a, maybe a type or a shadow, if you'd like for what we anticipate will be like when we go through the veil and are reunited with our family and with our heavenly father. Uh, to say nothing of, yeah, the savior uh, uh, returning back to his father, uh, sort of the, the reunion or the reaction that there must have been there, right? I think yeah. it's absolutely rich uh, in that sense of taking this imagery and sort of projecting what we hope or anticipate uh, will happen with us, with our, with our heavenly family, after we've gone through mortality and we've had all the drama, you know, sometimes really bad things we do with our families or friends or you know whatever, uh, the hopeful expectation is that through the gospel we'll all have that ultimate reconciliation where we can fall on each other's necks uh, and weep that way.
0: Absolutely, it's beautiful stuff. Um, I do think that as 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 wonderful as this reconciliation is, there's one teeny little caveat—not the reconciliation with Jacob, but the reconciliation of Joseph with his ten brothers. Benjamin, I don't think there's any problem, but with the 10 who sold him. And and it's interesting because, and you have to wonder, so what do they tell Jacob? Do they go back and say, oh, Jacob, it turns out Joseph's in Egypt because we sold him in there. Or do they just say, hey, it turns out Jacob's in Egypt. He wasn't killed. And Joseph and everyone went along with it to spare Jacob that that bit of sorrow. And I kind of almost think the latter because of this funny little thing that when Jacob dies, his brothers are afraid again. Mm. they're afraid of joseph again when jacob dies right which makes you think did they think we're all going along with the ruse to to make sure that dad doesn't feel too terrible Mm -hmm. and now there's nothing to keep joseph from punishing us so we might be in trouble now and they're fine the forgiveness was honest and genuine but they seem to have been living with wondering if it was this entire time right so there are all sorts of complexities in the story that we don't know the answer to but you just get hints of how how crazy this must have been for all of them the whole time even after this reckons there's there's an underlying tension still after they get back to egypt right absolutely and and there's still this uh okay we're the hicks in the middle of the sticks of egypt and joseph is the guy in egypt Mm -hmm. right there there's there's still some tension in the family that way, even if it's not intentional or bad tension. it's it's still it's still tension. there. yeah yeah,
1: yeah. it's the, the the consequences of the brother's actions and what and that tension that it introduced within the family dynamic is still going to linger. I think yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, I, I will also point out, by the way, I love that you mentioned the the imagery of Joseph falling on the neck of Jacob and weeping when they when they reconcile. Um, it also, of course parallels. Uh, Earlier in Genesis 33, Jacob and Esau. Yeah. uh, Because that exact same language is used in Genesis 33, uh, verse 4, when Jacob and Esau finally reconcile. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Again, the same. So so there's this great biblical scholar, Robert Alter, uh, Mm -hmm. who has written a lot on uh, sort of the the literary and narrative elements of, of biblical Hebrew prose. And Robert Alter was a champion for this idea of the type scene and basically what the type scene is in Robert Alter's formulation is, um, you have these sort of, uh, sort of not, not quite caricatured, but sort of these, uh, these specific like scenes or themes or elements of narrative that kind of have set characteristics that you then sort of plug in different characters with, um, they repeat kind of the same in broad strokes, the same actions. There's similar like thematic or narrative cues. The only difference is we're applying it to different stories. Right. So like the annunciation type scene is when uh, a woman is barren, she doesn't have a kid uh, and a divine being comes to her announces. She's going to have a kid and he's going to grow up to be a savior. Right. That happens with Samson that happens with Samuel that, you know uh, so, so he developed this and there's, you could kind of see this as a type scene of the reconciliation of these two parties that were at each other's throats, right? That uh, were, you know, in the case of Jacob and Esau, uh, literally having like a deadly competition with each other, uh, going to war with each other. And finally, they're reconciled. Joseph and the brothers, you know, they want to, they try to kill the guys on the slavery, reconcile. Uh, Joseph and Joseph and, uh, uh, and Jacob, they're, they're split apart, fighting on the dead, reconciled. So it, it's great. You can see uh, the power of repeating this type scene. Uh, and again, if you're an ancient... Israelite hearing these stories, probably hearing them read to you. When you hear Joseph and his brothers reconciled, when Joseph fell on their neck and wept, you're probably thinking, "Oh, that sounds familiar. That sounds like Jacob and Esau."
0: Yeah.
1: Right. And so you can sort of tie it in these broader narrative strokes. So it's effective storytelling in that way, uh, and it helps us. It helps us appreciate it there. Uh, the the sort of these repetitions of these type scenes uh, to help us sort of cement and appreciate that element.
0: Yeah, which is a motif that I think that that the. The, the Genesis or whoever writes Genesis really wants us to get, right? And so there's another actually one they don't use the falling on the neck and weeping, but you still get this idea when you go to um, Sarah's funeral and both Isaac and Ishmael are there um, that, that it, there's this repeated theme of brothers at strife being reconciled that they really want us to get. And that's, that's worth recognizing because, because we have to ask ourselves, so what are we supposed to learn from that? Certainly reconciliation is a big theme, and we usually think of reconciliation with God, um, and that's important. But there seems to be, uh, you know, brothers need to be reconciled with brothers. Whatever has happened, there needs to be reconciliation. So that, that's an important thing to learn from the long story arc of Genesis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well said.
0: Well, good. I we could. Uh, I mean, that's fruitful enough. We could end there. Or, but if you have other things you'd like to, to talk about, uh, we could do that. It's up to you.
1: Um, you know, maybe I could just reiterate. Um, you know, the the so so the whole you know discussion here we've been having and of your podcast is the scriptures are real, um, and how do we turn these into sort of real stories that are meaningful and applicable to us, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like what we've kind of arrived at here, and I found this helpful in my own study. Now, full disclosure, I am not saying that you should go get a PhD in, you know, ancient biblical studies or whatever (laughs) to appreciate the scriptures. You absolutely do not have to do that. As a matter of fact, I would warn you against doing that, uh, going into (laughs) a, a PhD program in the humanities these days. Uh, that's what this Bible. podcast
0: is for. So you that's don't what this have to podcast, do that. That, yeah.
1: That's right. Yeah. Carrie and I will take one for the team and we'll, uh, you know, go into the humanities PhDs for you. Um, but what, what, what I have found in my studies, both in my personal studies and in my uh, academic studies uh, is that uh, it doesn't necessarily, you can take sort of the, the historical elements that we've discussed. So we talked about John Gee's article where he grounds it in a real historical setting. That's important. And that's good. That's, that's one good way to ground the scriptures to make them real. You can take that and you can kind of wet it or combine it with the the complex literary and narrative art going into these stories. I don't find them, they they don't have to be mutually exclusive, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't have to assume because we believe these are real people in the real world, in the real time, therefore, these stories about them are like sort of like court stenographer reports, right? Like, oh, well, we have to read them very woodenly. We have to read them like we'd read a historical textbook. I don't think we have to do that. Um, We can appreciate that one way to make these characters real is through grounding them in the ancient context that they came from. Another way to make them real is to appreciate them as real characters within the story. Yes. Look for their personality traits. Look for their behavior. Look for patterns of maybe how they speak or how they react to certain situations. Right. Uh, that's another way to make the scriptures real. And I've found uh, that's a powerful way as I said, both in my sort of devotional reading of the Bible, but in my academic reading of the Bible, that's I found to be a powerful way uh, to make this text vibrant uh, and meaningful uh, and interesting and to sort of tease out not just how it speaks to us today, but how it would have probably spoken to its ancient audience that this was first composed for, the story was first composed for. If we can understand how they may have appreciated this, how can we also appreciate it in a similar way?
0: Good. I, I, I could not agree more. Uh, that's so, so what I hope happens from this podcast, right? And I'd say also look for, you know, the sorrows and the heartaches and the joys that we see in them, right? So, where you have uh, Sarah sorrowing and then you have her basically rejoicing and saying, and everyone should rejoice with me because I've had a child, right? And we're going to see that kind of a thing with, say, Hannah and others, this constant heartache and joy because we feel heartache and joy. Um, and uh, it speaks to us, and gives the when when it speaks to us in that way, I think it gives the spirit a chance to teach us about our own heartaches and joy, and heal, and edify, and and inspire, and move, and uh, motivate, and all of those things. And so, I think you've done a wonderful job of helping these characters become very real to us, uh, and and of pointing out the incredible job that the the writer here does in making them real to us and in making them real to us in a way that highlights some themes that we really should catch and and uh be inspired by so thank you for that very much Stephen. well
1: thank you carrie for the invitation to come on and talk about uh one of my favorite stories in the bible it's been fantastic i appreciate the opportunity
0: uh it's uh, just good clean fun to talk about the scripture so we Absolutely. would encourage uh yep yep we would encourage our audience to uh, to comment if it's uh, one of the platforms that has the ability to comment, but uh, also like and share and so on. Uh, if uh, Stephen has done such a great job of helping us with this story, we'd like for as many people to be helped by it as possible. We also want to thank all of the people who are, uh, and you can look in the little comment box to see the people who are making this podcast possible. And we encourage you all to go out and read the scriptures and let them become real in your lives. Thank you.
1: Thank you, well said.